Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People in Places, we are back with another DOD to AEC episode. A little bit of a little bit of pre-show discussion. I'm really excited for our next guest. He just told me some things that I didn't even know he did. We've known each other for about three years, done a little bit of business together. We've chased a little bit of business together, and we are excited to welcome Bill Lyons to the show. Bill, how are you today, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having so, me. It's great to have you. I ordinarily would start right into how did you land in the AEC industry? Where'd you get started? But the last I knew you were in South Sudan and I got like a 2 a.m. email from you. I'm in South Sudan. You want to chase this thing. So I think we need to start in South Sudan. When did you get back? What were you doing there? Let's go there. I, uh, my firm is a member of a team that is, holds a seat in the IDIQ pool for USAID. They have a global architecture and engineering services pool. It's four small businesses in the pool and three large businesses. So any task order under $5 million goes to one of the small businesses. Okay. And we competed for an engineering support contract in South Sudan in the fall of 2020. And uh, we got selected and uh, they, the government insisted on a civil engineer being full-time in South Sudan. The prime consultant was an, is an architecture firm, but they didn't employ any civil engineers. So they looked to me and said, hey, guess what? Your number is called, it's time to go. Put on my muddy boots and packed my bags and moved to South Sudan in November of 2020, right after Thanksgiving. Stayed there for 14 months, living in an expat camp on the economy, which taught me a lot of life lessons and a lot of things about the world that despite my breadth of travel, I really wasn't dialed into. So it was a really valuable experience for me. And I got to be the director of design and construction for the U.S. Embassy in Juba, South Sudan, which the embassy itself is an anomaly. It's the only embassy in the world where the State Department is the tenant. And the landlord is USAID. In my capacity as a USAID contractor, I was their design and construction program manager, which was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Happy to dive into any uh, any aspect of that that you'd like. Yeah, we'll dive into that next because it'll probably be the most recent project challenges that you've had to lead through and certainly an interesting geography to be navigating. Every show starts with us getting to know you. Your DOD to AEC, maybe the engineering background at Norwich is the starting point of this conversation. Maybe it's not. Maybe you had aspirations of being in the construction industry. The beauty I find of military members that have come from DOD and then continue to serve while building a civilian career going back and forth and some reserve assignments and what have you is you bring this diversity of experience and can really translate different worlds, a private sector, public sector. So talk to us about your career path. What'd you do on active duty? How'd you get into the engineering industry? How it started at Norwich? Sure. Norwich was the one and only school I applied to. I wanted so badly to be a naval officer when I was in high school. I applied to the Naval Academy. I was disqualified physically and then thought I was going to Norwich on a Naval ROTC scholarship. 
only to have them revoke that about two weeks before school started. Another time, another physical, unfortunate physical disqualification. So I ended up in Norwich in the Corps of Cadets, a little bit dis disillusioned. I always thought I wanted to be a naval officer since the time I was 13 or so. And that was no longer a path open to me. So after two years in Navy ROTC, I was in the hallway of the Army ROTC department and, they, and the captain there said, hey, Lyons, what are you doing? Are you going to commission or what? And I said, I'm in, supposed to go in the Navy, but I'm physically disqualified. And the guy said, oh, we'll take you. We got much lower <laughs> standards. <laughs> and quite literally, a handful of days later, I was signing an enlistment contract and I became an SMP cadet at Norwich. As a For student, all our listeners, I want to clarify, the Army's medical standards are much lower, but our brain power standards are much higher. Than the I'll agree with that. <laughs> As an undergraduate, I was an electrical engineer. And uh, I was not a particularly good student. I graduated from Norwich of the second lowest cumulative GPA in the engineering division. And my roommate was the lowest, so that should tell you a lot. But I really took a strong interest in the Army RTC program. Uh, not only did they welcome me, but I excelled. I very quickly became a leader in the ROTC battalion there and fell in love with military service. I did accept reserve forces duty contract and then and subsequently a reserve forces duty commission so it guaranteed me reserve forces duty which at the time was a saving grace because i graduated in 90 and the, every service mm. was just shedding people like crazy but if you were in the reserves you would keep your commission and you wouldn't get let go as, as many of my friends did i ended up serving in a military intelligence unit and deployed a few times. I deployed to Iraq, and I'm sorry, not Iraq, Kuwait in 94 after the, the first war with Iraq, the, the Gulf War, and ended up doing the usual routines, company command, et cetera, and, and started myself on a very good career. In the meantime, I came home from my officer basic course in 1991. Literally, there were no jobs anywhere, not for electrical engineers, not for mechanical engineers, not for anybody. So I did a bunch of odd jobs, which taught me a lot of really important lessons about being self-reliant. I ended up selling pots and pans and china plates. Wasn't very successful at that. I ended up helping to run a convention, which was very interesting, but that was short-lived. And then I was actually pumping gas at a gas station for $5 an hour in 1991, when actually 92, when a friend of the family drove in. And it just so happened that he was the deputy commissioner of Mass Highway Department at the time. <laughs> He basically said, Billy, why are you pumping gas? Don't you have an electrical engineering degree? And I said, yes. And he says, show up my office on Monday. We'll get you going at Mass Highway. We have electricity in our traffic lights and in our highway lighting. So I'm sure we can find a place for you. And I was like, who am I going to interview with? What should I do? And he goes, knock it off, you dummy. You're hired. Just show up on Monday. Will you? <laughs> so that was my, my, my not exciting start in the AEC industry. I worked for MassDOT for two and a half years. And then I, I went to work for a consulting firm, rose through the ranks pretty quickly there, stayed five years, learned a lot about municipal engineering, highway design, traffic engineering, transportation planning. And then that company got bought and I could see the handwriting on the wall that everything was going to change for me. So I applied for a job in the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, as the director of traffic and parking. And I had no business doing that job. It's a very political city, and I had no connection to the city. But I impressed the mayor in my interview, and she offered me a job. And it was weird because she started the interview by saying, now, this is a really tough city to do work in. It's very political. And there's a very good chance that somewhere on the line, I'm just going to have to fire you. And it's probably not because of anything you did. It's just politics. And I said, 
that's fine, Mayor. You're going to f- have to fire me within five years anyways, because I'm going to upset somebody. And I take that at face value. <laughs> Crushing. <laughs> so that's how I got my job. So I, I did that job. I got mobilized in 2001 to go to Bosnia and do the peace enforcement mission there as part of the NATO stabilization mm-hmm. forces. And it just so happened that our plane landed on Eagle Base, Bosnia, on September 11th, 2001, which was a hair-raising, insane, crazy day, to say the very least. As we taxied to the end of the runway, they wouldn't let us off the plane. About half hour later, the post command sergeant major came on the plane and said, I regret to inform you of what's taking place in the United States. And he walked us through the towers coming down in Shanksville and the Pentagon and everything else. And then he said, as you get off the plane, you're going to be handed an ammunition basic load. And no matter your rank, you're going to go stand at the fence line until we sort this out. So that was a wake up call for me. Spent seven months there, learned a lot of life lessons there, especially about finding similarities in people rather than differences, because it was a multinational force. And I had to work with people from all over the world. And that was a really enlightening assignment for me. I came home for 10 months and in the city of Somerville. Got mobilized for Iraq, went in Operation Iraqi Freedom, did that for a year, returned to the city of Somerville, but my mayor had been voted out of office. And the new mayor said, this is pretty close to a quote, listen, I can't fire a war hero. You'll have your job. We'll find you a desk, but I'm taking away your authority. You don't have your car anymore. You don't have your phone anymore. You're basically going to sit at a desk. And I'm like, got it. (laughs) No problem. So I launched a a traffic traffic engineering and planning business with some friends. That took off until 2008 with the crash. It was, we were entirely in the land development business at that time. And then I pivoted and went into the federal marketplace because Uncle Sugar was trying to spend their way out of a recession. And my, my business, my service disabled that are known small business has been at it ever since. It's been a, been a wild ride, some ups, some downs, some inside outs, but it's been a really great experience. But I hope that answers the career path question. It does. There's some education path intermixed in here. I think there's more degrees on your resume than anybody I've interviewed yeah. so far. So I got a JD. I got a master of transportation and urban systems. I've got a master of strategic studies, a master of study sustainability leadership, a graduate certificate in land use and development, and a bachelor of science from electrical engineering. The only thing that we've covered so far was the bachelor's. I'm a lifelong learner. And I truly and honestly believe that whether you do it in an informal setting or formal setting, we all need to be growing developing. I personally enjoy the formal setting of learning. I have plenty of informal learning too, but pretty much since the 90s, I've been in school, if not full-time, darn close to it. So I, it took me seven years to finish my Juris Doctor, what I started in, in 1999. It took me seven years because of the two deployments really messed me up there. Uh, but subsequent to that, I ended up going to the Joint Forces Staff College and the Army's Command and General Staff Officers course. And it really whetted my whistle for further education. I started doing a class here and there, some at Northeastern, some at UMass Lowell, and in transportation engineering, and I really decided that I was interested. And then took three classes by FHWA through regional transportation centers. And so it, I chose North Dakota State University for no particular reason other than I didn't have to go to the campus. And they had this three credit, these three class certificate in leadership, which is an important part of my life. So I took that. And then North Dakota said, you take one more class and you can get a graduate certificate, which is credit and you'll be done. It's a four class certificate. And I said, okay, sure. I'll take one more. And then they said, hey, Bill, if you have any credits from other universities that are graduate level credits, we can add them to this 
And then you only have to do the balance to get to 10 classes. And I'm like, for real? They're like, yeah. So I said, well, I have three classes, two from Lowell, one from Northeastern. They said, sure, no problem. I'm like, do, you, do I need to submit some transcripts or something? They're like, yeah, yeah, send that along. But so long as it's kosher, then we'll sign you up. So here I am now, seven classes into a 10-class master. So I just kept going. I had my, my, my GI bill, and they were taking nothing from me other than my GI money. So I started on that. In the meantime, I got selected for Army War College and started that program and finished both that master's at North Dakota State and the War College within two weeks of each other. I got two master's in a matter of two weeks. And then I was looking for my next big challenge. And I recognized that sustainability was going to be really falling of our generation at this point. So I signed up for the Master of Studies in Sustainability Leadership Program at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And that was transformational for me. I worked with other students literally from all over the world, all continents except for Antarctica were represented in my class. People that were like director of sustainability at major corporations, manufacturing corporations, consumer product corporations. Uh, one of my classmates was the starter of the founder of Virgin Mobile. These are some serious high profile people. And I, I'll be honest, I had a, quite a bit of imposter syndrome the first workshop that we had, it was really overwhelming, but I found my groove and that program really did alter my worldview about our role in the world, Americans' role in the world versus the rest of the world. You get a little humbled when you go there and you're the only non-American in the class and they're talking about you. So that was, that was my, my last master's. And now I'm trying to finish my PhD, which is taking a lot longer than I hoped, mostly because of my South Sudan work. But yeah, that's the path. <laughs> Quite a path. You're running a small business. Give us the 30-second or two-minute on Fort Hill and what that company is, what it does. So we're, we're of a blend of your traditional AEC company that, for instance, our biggest clients are USAID, VA, and the Department of Defense through Corps of Engineers and other agencies like NAFAC. So in that sense, we're very traditional, full design build, design bid build, design during construction, that, that type of stuff. The flip side is we're very entrepreneurial and agile and do things that are not normally in an AEC company's wheelhouse. So I do a lot of expert witness consulting work, pulling in my engineering background with my legal background. Some of my clients include the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the Army Corps of Engineers, and, and I really enjoy that work, really exciting to me. And it's a nice break from the traditional AEC stuff. And I do a lot of other oddball things like ESG due diligence for private investments and in utilities and infrastructure, which is an emerging field for us, which I, I'm really excited about that. And then we do tons of real estate development work, traffic studies, transportation planning, that sort of stuff. And more and more ESG work for those clients as well. We're in some ways very traditional, in other ways very different. It sounds as dynamic as your resume is, your company is. And before we got on, you also talked about your academic academia position, the other hat that you wear. Yeah. You're a fractional everything. <laughs> It's funny you say that. So my position at Norwich University is a is a 0.3 FTE. So I've been reduced to a fraction of three letters, but I'm really a third of a full-time employee. The position is the director of the Center for Global Resilience and Security, which really is a research center dedicated to 
the nexus between uh, climate change and sustainability and human security, and as a multiplier of that, regional security, international security, conflict, et cetera. So very much looking at how climate change is a, and sometimes a catalyst, sometimes just an inflammatory to create insecure conditions. It's a niche area, not too many people looking at it. We think we are onto in terms of trying to understand the relationship between these two things. And then ultimately, hopefully influence security policy to think deeper than just, hey, we need to send a whole battalion of troops to some corner of the world to deliver food aid or to create security so that climate migrants aren't being prosecuted or persecuted. Um, and we think that that link is super important to understand as the world becomes less and less stable, in part as a result of climate change. The research center is about six years old. I was a senior, a volunteer senior fellow in the center for the first five years or so, and now the previous director was promoted. So it was a vacancy, and they asked me to step in and run the ship. Been a really wild experience so far. I, I want to do a timeout and just highlight two two things here. One podcast we always talk about DoD to AEC and the ability for uh, whether you're an officer or an enlisted to some of your experiences from the military, maybe some overseas experiences, and translate them into being a problem solver in this big AEC world, which is not just need an engineering degree, need to do design, or need a construction background, need to do construction inspection. But really, you have large-scale problems that need to be solved, and you need diverse background people that can help navigate issues and solve problems, and, and willing to say yes to tough assignments. So I, I want to highlight that. The other is I want to highlight, we talk about AEC as an industry or more, maybe more macro level infrastructure investment and public infrastructure investment and its role in one, our economic strength, and then how our economic strength leads to our national security and our ability to support the world. And your, your directorship here, sustainability really has turned into resilience, right? Don't just build it, but build it so that it can be it can come back. Don't build it to be sustainable. Build it that it's anti-fragile, I think, is probably the way to say it, so that it can be resilient. The impact that climate change is having on that, not just in the US, but around the world, and then the lack of resilience around the world and what that leads to populations and whether global security, food security, health, the health and human service side of those, those communities I think you're the poster child for what we are aiming to talk about and elevating the conversation from an engineering and construction industry to really an industry that's solving problems that that really make a huge impact on the way the entire world lives. So thank you for bringing that to the forefront. Thanks for what you're doing. I'd like to just maybe go into one or two vignettes, maybe South Sudan's appropriate, maybe other work. I know that you've done some complicated public-private partnerships. You've done a number of different projects. So whether we go to a topic of project leadership or maybe more thought leadership, any specific projects or engagements or issues going on right now that you're passionately involved in and want to speak to? Yeah. So I will focus on the South Sudan thing because it spans so many of the things you just mentioned. 
So stepping back to how you describe leadership as problem solving and engineering as problem solving, really the nexus or the intersection of those two is far more overlapping than a lot of people think about. Particularly NCOs and officers are charged with solving problems. And they don't necessarily think of it that way because they're taught to be leaders and that's what leaders do. And but they don't nobody probably says to them very often, hey, you're a problem solver. In fact, there's lots of NCOs that take that as a as a slight. And truth, that's what they <laughs> I work do, for right? a living. They come up with these insurmountable situations and then they come up with bubble gum and band-aids and all of a sudden you have a tank that's running down the road. So it's it really is part of the DNA of being a leader in the military. And in engineering I've always said is fundamentally an education in problem solving, right? Your clients that have a problem, your job is to solve the problem. Um, I think that that confluence creates optimal conditions for person personnel that are leaving the services or in the reserve compartment services to use the skills that they obtain there to be really good servants of their clients. And I, I mean that in the servant leader context, like creating a situation where you're a natural leader for your client and they want you to solve their problems for you. They call you up and say, hey, I have a problem. They don't go, hey, Bill, we have a new project. Hey, the problem, need your help. And the problem there was and is they inherited the U.S. Embassy there is in a originally a Red Cross camp built in the early 2000s prior to South Sudanese independence from Sudan. It was taken over by USAID in 2008 as a mission delivery point, a camp effectively. And then when, when South Sudan became a country in 2011, U.S. State Department moved in with their elbows out, hey, this is our territory. And USAID said, no, this is our home. You're welcome to be a guest. Interestingly, this camp, which is now an embassy, is very primitive in many ways. And the infrastructure has been failing miserably for quite some time. So in fact, there were five fires on the compound the year that we got retained and we got retained specifically for that purpose, mostly because most of the appliances and the fixtures and the residences were improperly rated for the electrical supply in South. So anyways, I went in, first thing I just said, we don't even know where to start. (laughs) Where do we start? I said, let's do an assessment of all your facilities. Again, coming out, helping them solve a problem. We did a complete inventory and assessment of all the deficiencies. We published a vertical structures assessment report. Everybody loved it. And then they said, now what? Then we do a master plan that incorporates everything that we learned about what's wrong. And then so we built out a $50 million capital master plan for the next seven years. Now going on, they're building a new embassy compound on the other side of the city. So they don't want to overinvest in this compound, but they want it safe. So we started designing new facilities to extend the life of the existing compound. So we're going to do a kitchen renovation, some laundry renovations. We're doing a complete electrical overhaul, $25 million electrical overhaul. We're reprogramming the existing chancery building. We're upgrading all the ACs because they were the wrong types of ACs. And we're creating condensation in the units, which was causing rust. Anyway, so we're solving these problems for them as as they present. And it's, it's been a culmination of my life's career to be that leader that everybody looks to, to solve the problem and having, after 30 years of, in the business, having the skill sets, right, to know who to look to, to put together the right team for the right problem set. And so without my military career, there's no way I would have been as successful as I was in that context. And at the same time, the, 
my engineering experience, my legal experience, my planning experience have all provided me, and for that matter, my public-private partnership experience have all provided me with the foundation upon which to solve these problems. Part of all this has also <laughs> pick up, move from Boston to South Sudan, find a residence, get settled into the residence, get climatized. It's 115 degrees every day there. Learn the ropes of the community that you're in. Now, they've had two civil wars since they became independent. And any one day of the week, there could be AK-47 fire right outside the compound. So you, as a military, past military person, you really have the skill sets to respond, re react appropriately, recognize when you're out of your depth, recognize when you need to take caution and change your behavior. All those things, all that military background is totally applicable to moving into that environment with relative alacrity. Like no whistles were going off, no bells were going off. I was mindful and cautious. Now I've worked in 22 countries on five continents over the last 15 years. So I'm not the kind of guy that shies away from those environments, but this was easily the most challenging for sure. I think one, if I could talk to one lesson that I really learned in this process. And it's been accumulating over time. I mentioned it in a context of my experience in Cambridge. But learning to see people for your similarities rather than your differences is a super important skill in effect. So I moved into a camp that was full of expats from all over the world, none of them American or one of them American. So you need to fit in, right? And so you, they have different political points of view, different social points of view. I could have been the loneliest person in the world if I just stuck to my world and said, cancel culture. I don't like what you stand for in your personal life. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to socialize with you. Instead, you find a way to, to blend in a little bit. Be yourself. But don't be hypercritical of other people because you haven't walked in their shoes. You don't know where they came from. And that, so that applied in, in my living experience, but also in the business world. One of my business partners there is a local South Sudanese engineering and construction firm. And they come from a completely different background, different expectations, different processes. Learning to understand what's similar between us rather than what's different between us helped me build bridges to the point where, as one example, they invited me to their culture day at their company. And I thought I was just one of many attendees. And as I got there, they escorted me into the room and sat me <laughs> at the front of the room and they're like, you're the guest of honor. And I was like, what? They fed me all of the foods from their village. They did all kinds of dances that come from their particular tribes. They shared music. They shared all kinds of customs, clothing. And for me, that was a really important change in my worldview, right? So I went from being... I was basically their prime consultant, right? And they were my sub. We had a business relationship. And over time, it became uh, invested in to the point where I became yeah. one of them, in a sense. A once a warrior king moment. And it was moving. It was very touching. As another example, I learned that Juba University there didn't have any professors to teach highway engineering, airport and highway engineering. And I went to the university and I was like, I'll teach the class. And they're like, but we don't have any money. I'm like, I don't need any money. I just want to be helpful. So on my own time, I taught a 400 uh, airport and highway design course to a bunch of folks, many of whom didn't speak. And they, at the end of the class, they insisted the entire class went to the we took photos. Each and every student, all of them together, different arrangements. They all wanted to be associated with the American that was willing to put his time in. Again, breaking down bridges, creating new ways to think about my relationship with the world. That's very cool. And how reward, what are you doing 
What are you busy with right now since I know the third of your time is spent at the university? Any exciting projects going on right now? Big thing for me right now is we just got our first task order, which will likely involve you at some point on our VA brokerage contract. It literally came in yesterday. Oh, exciting. Uh, that is an opportunity for us to work together again. And just the ramping up of that has become all-consuming in, in recent history. I have some real private development projects going on. One of my clients purchased the shipyard in Boston, and they're recapitalizing the shipyard and in lab development. So we're doing all the traffic and transportation-related work for that, including a shuttle system to bring one of our most vulnerable neighborhoods, Roxbury, right to the project development's front doors for employment and education opportunities. So client is going to literally fund this, this shuttle for pretty much round trip all day travel in between this neighborhood. And, and, and we were the designers wow. of that. So that was a really exciting opportunity for me to apply my ESG experience and passion with, with my other passion, which is transportation. That same client had me do an ESG study of a of an existing MBTA site they want to buy. And so we really made the case that the, the that what we would do with this is much more responsible environmentally, socially, and economically than what the MBTA is doing at that site. So I'm really looking to continue to work my ESG background into your bread and butter transportation engineering and planning projects. It, you talked about ESG and how sustainability may be the calling of our generation. How are you seeing that? kind of blend in with public policy at this moment in time? And where do you see it going? That's an excellent question. Massachusetts is probably way out in the, ahead of a lot of uh, states and communities in the United States. We've had very proactive climate policies now for more than a decade. So the state agencies get it. It's, sometimes it's hard to get through to just a cookie cutter. This is how we do it. But most of the younger people, and I say younger, I'm 55. So my my age and younger are, are much more attuned to the fact that it's not business as usual like it has been since the start of the, the Eisenhower interstate system. We're all looking at things much differently, complete streets and what's the impact economically and socially rather than just creating more opportunity for single occupant vehicles. Nationally, the United States government does not get enough credit, I think, for being out in front of this stuff. Again, there's lunks that just don't either don't believe it or it's just they don't want to change. But the vast majority of people that I come into contact with at USACE and NAVFAC and the VA are all very much dialed into the reality that we have to think differently, right? We have to handle our stormwater differently. We have to handle the amount of trips we look at differently. The way we engineer things has to be looked in the context of, are we creating more waste? Are we creating unsustainable energy practices? Our firm has gotten involved in a lot of microgrid design projects which are satisfying. And I see that to continuing. We get involved in the Muddy River Restoration Project, which took a watercourse in Boston and the Emerald Necklace and restored it to its original beauty and, and functionality, most importantly, as a flood, a flood damage reduction tool. That it was designed to help manage floods. And so we restored it. And lo and behold, <laughs> they don't have floods anymore in that neighborhood. It's interesting to see the evolution from practicality to aspirational change in the industry. And now my now that the, my, my private clients have say, seen what they can do from a positive point of view, they're some of my most aggressive and exciting clients. They're like, hey, how can we incorporate more sustainability in this project? 10 years ago, most of these guys were going, 
oh my God, now they want me to follow a lead certification process. And now they're all like, hey, we don't really care about that lead thing. We want to do something really exciting. How can we do that? My my client wanted to do a 10-story laminated timber building with an external forest growing up the side. I was like, really? (laughs) You want to do that? That's just the changing times. And I'm excited to see that it's happening. It's happening right before our eyes. And I think it's cool to hear that. But there's also the practicality side of it, of the cost of doing business improves the amount of downtime or the risk to mission, if you will. ESG is not just what I saw 10 years ago was people felt they needed to do it just to be trendy or more marketable or environmentally friendly because of reputation management. Now I think that we as an industry and private sector as an industry have seen the benefits of being a more resilient organization that if a superstorm Sandy or like event happens that they're not shutting down operations for weeks at a time or losing downtime and there's a productivity side to it. And I think the macro of that is what's going to be really interesting to me as, again, going back to the macro of infrastructure and resilient cities, the cost of FEMA responding to a natural disaster versus the investment proactive investment in avoiding natural disasters. That cost-benefit analysis, I think, is hard to measure at this point, but hopefully ESG from a macroeconomic standpoint can get us there where we're prioritizing infrastructure in a way that actually saves us money over the long term because dollars spent when emergencies going on and we have a gun to our head to, to save people or to, to restore operations Business is expensive when you're in an emergency. Yeah. When you're proactively staying ahead of it and we are educating our issuance and our taxpayers on the ability to invest in these projects to avoid disasters, to avoid bad spending on the back end, I think we get to a great place as a national economic policy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the business community is starting to factor in these the, the environmental impact of disasters into their calculus when they're doing developments, whether it's specifically on a pro forma or not, they're getting it, right? Yeah. Um, so the next logical first step for them is to start thinking about natural capital as part of the cost of their operation. And we're starting to get there. We're talking about how much carbon is in our building materials and how do we eliminate our or reduce our carbon footprint from building buildings and for that matter, dismantling buildings. And that's starting to creep into people's mindset too. But that's still, I think, a much harder sell to them from a business point of view, right? Because it's some future generations problem, not theirs. Um, And we we don't have the best practices out there yet that make it cost effective to do it. So you really need some first movers that either have a big enough reason to do it, DOD, yeah. <laughs> if you or somebody that's just in in more of a business slash philanthropic kind of mindset to to be the first mover and find the solution. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's coming. It's a slow. So I teach at a workshop at Cambridge on coastal resiliency. So with the seaport in Boston as a case study. I okay. Them, okay. These are people, one of my students was or is a portfolio manager at Grosvenor, one of the richest companies in London, France. A couple of them are investors, a couple of them are architects or engineers. So it's a really diverse group. And I say, okay, your 
entire group project is to come up with recommendations as to how to mitigate the impact of coastal flooding in a city that has a thriving seaport. What would you focus on? And then the investors go away and they've got one thought and the engineers go away. We'll just engineer our way out of this problem. Public policy people are like, let's look at studies. And it's really interesting to see that at the end, they're all coming together on understanding each other's point of view and coming up with practical but economical, like business sensible solutions. And to me, that's like the magic secret sauce that get right. people that are in the in business to do things. And they're all kind of, kind of comes together at the end. I think 10 years ago, yeah. that would have been virtually impossible to see those conversations happening now. That's awesome. And if you keep politics out of the room, people can get a lot of good stuff done. It's absolutely true. It's amazing. <laughs> What's the, I think the quote is, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you're not worried about who's getting the credit for it. Yes. Yep. Very well stated. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector. So speaking of quotes, any favorite quotes in your, in your library? I'm not really good at quotes. I will say there's a poem, Robert Frost poem. There's actually two. The Road, the road Less Taken is a, it's not a quote, but it's a short poem. And if you read it, you know what you're reading. It's a real we'll put it in the show notes. Poem. And the other is Stopping the Woods in a Snowy Evening. I think I get that title correct, but if you look it up, you'll find it. Both of those poems, and I, I'm a huge Robert Frost fan, so I'll confess that up front. There, there are many life lessons. You can read that over and over, and you get different answers every time. But if you think about it, there's some serious life lessons in there. So it's not a quote, but it's what I think about when I'm thinking about applying life lessons. to things. I like it. Any must-read books? Yeah, I read a book a long time ago. And now what's old is new again. There's a book called Pieces of the Game written by a guy named Colonel Chuck Scott. He was the senior defense attache in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran when it fell in 79. I had the opportunity to see him speak once. So he's, it's not one of those famous books. You can still get it on Amazon. What, why that book? Do you happen to know, do you happen to know Bud Buka? I don't know. He's a, I think he lives in Boston now. Developer, but he was in Tehran running Ross Perot's EDS group and was involved oh, wow. in the, when Ross Perot I think it's on Eagle's Wings. Is that yep. the book? That's the book that highlights that exit out of there yeah yeah um, I think you're right so just through that he's a medal of honor recipient 1968 uh, west point grad very interesting uh, yeah yeah so this guy chuck scott wrote a book about his experience and the lessons that this adversity taught him about courage about ethics about his moral it always stuck with me i saw him speak in when i was an undergraduate and the times that we're living in now with Iran and the changes that are going on there, I picked that book up again not so long ago and started to reread it, looking at it from the lens of today's challenges in Tehran and then Iran. And it's, it's interesting to see how things come back. They're in the opposite direction now, right? They're demanding more freedoms and theocracy to loosen things up rather than the other way around. But you just think about this society that's gone through this churn, this turmoil, now for a better part of my lifetime, 40 years anyways. And I don't know, the, the, just picking up the book and looking at it with today's history 
in context is, was uh, was really interesting. So that's my point. Let me make sure I got it right. Pieces of game, G-A-I-N? Pieces of the game, G-A-M-E. Okay. Oh, of the game. Gotcha. All right. Next question. Dead or alive, if you could have dinner with three people, who would they be? Whew. Dead or alive. I'd love to have dinner with my dad. Hmm. He passed away in uh, 99. So knowing now what I know, it would be an interesting conversation for sure. I've always wanted to have a conversation with Bill Gates, the philanthropist, philanthropist, not Bill Gates, the businessman. I respect his business success, but I think the things he's tried to do in his retirement are far more interesting to me. After yeah. spending... A considerable amount of time in Africa. I've worked in Zambia, South Sudan, Chad. I'm about to go to Niger. Looking at that to me is the things he's set out to do in his retirement are very impressive to me. Whether they're successful or not, I think we need leaders like him who are willing to step into the breach and try, right? Nobody knows what's yeah. going to work to solve big problems, but try. And I think that's that's super, super important. And I guess... Essayons. Yeah. No, I'd love to have dinners in a way with General Eisenhower, because that man thought he played chess on so many different levels at the same time. I think it would be fascinating to try and digest him in a context of a dinner, because I just, there are so many things that guy could think about at once. It's just fascinating to me. So there's three. Uh, so I, it, everything that you said, something to me, Bill Gates has, uh, there's a documentary on his philanthropy and can't remember where it's probably Netflix ish. We'll find it in this and put it in the show notes. But I remember the competition they were having for trying to solve clean sanitation, a sanitary sewer, basically what's a toilet that's sustainable that you could go deploy over the, into rural or third world countries. And then the Eisenhower comment, somebody that can think about so many different things or be managing so many different chess boards at once. I used to think these humans are just superhuman. I've since started to believe they've got an amazing ability to manage staff and bring the right people around them to just be anybody that looks that good at what they're doing or is capable of handling that many different crises or chessboards, as you put it. They've got to have an unbelievable ability to lead and attract others and enable or empower and so the leadership skills of that individual, not just the brain power yeah. of them. Couldn't agree more. Um, all good lessons to study. Close this out with what do you want your personal professional legacy to be? Any parting words to our industry? We've got senior executives listening to this on the military and public side. We've got private sector leaders listening to it. And we've got junior military officers transitioning and figuring out their next their next mission, if you will. So any words you want to want to leave with the audience. I hope my epitaph is that I gave more than I took. Pretty simple part of my persona and my, and my, my philosophy about life. I think a couple of quick nuggets. One is be super and see all that you might not see if you were, if you didn't have your aperture wide open. If I didn't take that job at MassDOT in 1992, I have no idea where I'd be, but I've lived a really enriching life in that the openness to that changed my the course of my life. And that extends to all my work overseas. It came from a college classmate, my roommate, actually, the guy with the lower cumin than me. Uh, 
he called me up. He was the, at that time, he was the command engineer of Special Operations Command South. And he says, Bill, I need somebody that understands security and civil engineering and is comfortable operating in these, these low permissibility environments. And, and he said, the only one I can think of is you. So can you get in on a plane and come down? And that, that resulted in literally 10 years of work that took me to 16 countries. And then that building on that took me to wow. another, I don't know, six or seven countries. And if I didn't have my aperture open, if he'd called and I said, no, I'm just too busy, Kyle, I'm sorry. I'm doing my basic land, land development client. I could have just said that. I said, sure, I'll take that invitation. Right. I'll come down and have a conversation with you. So I think that's a really important lesson for people wherever they are in their career, whether they're thinking about the next phase of their life, kind of quasi-retirement, or they're just graduating from college or everywhere in between. Like, just listen to opportunities. Not all of them are worth exploring, but if you don't listen, if you can't hear them, you won't perceive something that could fly by. So I think that's super important. And again, I couldn't stress enough, look for similarities in, in people rather than differences because our world is in some trouble with all of the back and forth nonsense about exploring differences rather than similarities. And I've learned over a lifetime that there's so much more pleasure and so much to learn from other people, especially if they're different from us. And as long as we have an open mind, there's a lot of joy in life to be had if we similarities. So those are my words of wisdom, if I could offer them. They are awesome words of wisdom. Bill, can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us. Appreciate all of your insights. Congratulations on such a successful and diverse. Can't wait to hear what's next. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thanks, PJ. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.